I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey folks, it's Luke. Stay where you are because coming up we have writer Augustin Burroughs with his wish list for new organs. There's wait lists for everything. And my heart's good enough, my liver, whatever, it's fine I guess. But give me some baby eyes, I need them to see things. Or dog eyes. I don't actually need color. Eee, this is the show that just got mildly grossed out and we're only 20 seconds in. This is... From my little home studio in Seattle, Washington, it's a special edition of Live Wire Radio on this Thanksgiving holiday weekend. We've got some great sketches and moments from past shows with the likes of Augustin Burroughs and Cheryl Strayed, plus some new moments with author Simon Singh and professional cuddler, yes, that is a thing, remember the show is based in Portland after all, professional cuddler Samantha Hess. All that plus music from year afar. Coming up on this special holiday edition of Live Wire Radio. Welcome to a very special post-holiday. We know you're probably still in some sort of a food coma type situation edition of Live Wire Radio. I'm your host Luke Burbank. Sorry about the uh, scratchy voice this week. You know, I wish I had like a cool story, like maybe two people were pulling on a wishbone at my family Thanksgiving, and when the wishbone snapped, the bigger part flew across the room and lodged in my throat and thwarted my Aunt Mary Lou's wish. But actually, this is just sort of your garden variety scratchy throat. The important thing is, we here at Livewire have been hard at work combing the archives and even recording some new stuff to shake you from your food-based slumber this week. Coming up, we've got author Simon Singh talking about his new book, which details all of the interesting math that's featured in the TV show The Simpsons, and also some of the happy mistakes that have been made by famous mathematicians. The great thing about Taniyama was that he would make mistakes, but he would make mistakes in the right direction, and it would lead him to beautiful truths. Sadly, our mistakes here on Livewire, they, they don't lead to beautiful truths. More like regret giant sandwich eating at two in the morning but now it's getting kind of personal anyway also on this week's show acclaimed author of the book wild cheryl strayed reads from another one of her books tiny beautiful things you will come to know things that can only be known with the wisdom of age and the grace of years and we're going to talk to samantha hess she is portland's first professional snuggler we're going to talk to her about the medical benefits of a snuggle while you nap Plus, author Augustin Burroughs with tips on how to handle your mental health and move past bad memories. Actually, the past doesn't haunt us. We haunt it. But first off, it was back in 2007 when we had singer, composer, and performance artist Holcomb Waller on the show, and he gave a very memorable performance. It was a song called Into the Dark Unknown. And here's how it was inspired. He was having a conversation with his mother after he'd been at a wedding, a particularly tough time for Holcomb, because the U.S. had just recently made gay marriage, which is the kind he'd be taking part in if he found the right person. They'd made gay marriage illegal. And this song was inspired by the advice Holcomb Waller's mom gave him after that wedding. This is Holcomb Waller on Livewire Radio. 
Like a vision she stepped out And all the fear that fed his doubt Just surrendered to the hour The bridesmaids and the flowers The promises they made Before the gathered here today's Well I crept through the reception Like a child freshly scorned I caught up with all my old friends Tending to their newborns I caught I could have cried But all my ghosts laid down and died I'm ready to go my way River life Take your knife And cut these tethered weights Cut them free Let me be the way that I must be Where they must go into the dark unknown Mother, will I disappoint you If I can't make it back upstream I am fighting, I am fighting But I don't make the team Son, I stood here by your father Over thirty-some-odd years If there's one thing I should tell you You have to face your own fear Whether married or alone You are always on your own I'm ready to go my Holcomb Waller with Into the Dark Unknown. You are listening to Livewire Radio. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Sorry about the scratchy throat this week. Turns out you got to take the cranberry sauce out of the can before you eat it. Lesson learned. Hey, I know what you're thinking. Look, it's great that we've got all these smartphone pictures now of Thanksgiving Day so we can all remember what happened. But you might also be thinking what you'd really like is a professional photo perhaps with family members, posed inside of festive holiday gourds. Well, you're in luck, because Peg Tut has you covered. Gobble, gobble. It's that time of year again. Time to pick up a turkey and get a fantastic photo with your family. I'm Peg Tut, and you can find that and more at my new all-weather Peg Tut's Turkey Farm and Photography Exposium. Stan Gettys, recently acquitted brother of photographer Ann Gettys, will create fantastical photo times by placing your family members inside fun hollowed out objects like Einstein's head, the belly of a zebra, or the engine block of a 67 Corvette Stingray. Wow! Choose from one of our classic backgrounds, blue, frosted blue, beige, frosted beige, or laser alley. Are you a stocky family? 
All photos come in landscape format. Do you have a boring pet? We could spice it up with a fun costume, a wig in the style of any of the U.S. First Ladies. Hello, Puggles Van Buren. But don't forget, we're also Dundee County's largest free-range turkey farm. We have over 2,000 plump and terrified birds waiting to be your Thanksgiving meal. Bring one over to Bill Dickey in the skinning pit. He'll tastefully remove the head and unsightly feathers from your turkey feast. For an additional fee, your smallest child can swing the axe him or herself. That's fun for the whole family. At Peg Tuts, you will literally get to kill two birds with one stone or one giant axe wielded by Bill Dickey. That's Peg Tut's Turkey Farm and Photography Exposium, just off Highway 27 across from Romance Lost and Found and the new Salazar's Everyday Cobras and Pythons 2 and also Vipers. Come to Peg Tut's Photography Exposium, get your family picture and a lesson about the unavoidability of death. You laugh, but... Me and my wife, we, we got our wedding photos done in there. And, um, man, amazing stuff. I just can't recommend it highly enough. You are listening to Livewire Radio. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Stay with us for author Simon Singh talking about the math featured on The Simpsons, plus mental health advice from Augustine Burroughs and professional cuddling from Samantha Hess. All that and more coming up in a moment when we come back. Listening to Livewire Radio next up on this special edition of the show where we're looking at holidays and family. It's an author who wrote a book about a family. It's just an animated one, which we know is kind of a stretch, but you're going to forgive us because you are about to be fascinated by Simon Singh and his latest book, which is called The Simpsons and Their Mathematical Secrets. Now, Simon has discovered all these plots and subtle references to math. And famous equations and theorems and hypotheses all wedged into one of America's longest-running, funniest TV shows. And he was in Seattle recently, and he was nice enough to stop by my house and chat about the book. I was really shocked at the CVs of some of the people who created The Simpsons. Uh, I didn't realize until I looked in your book that you've got, like, uh, BS Mathematics, Harvard University, and Mathematics at Berkeley... Uh, Stuart Burns, David Cohen, B.S. in physics from Harvard, Al Jean, B.S. in mathematics from Harvard, and the list goes on. I mean, and, and PhDs as well. Yeah, a couple of PhDs and a Yale professor. These writers, as you pointed out, they're really strong, confident mathematicians, and they put in um, some really quite obscure mathematics, and they do it regularly. What is your math background? Uh, my, my background is in physics, which... Um, Pure physics is very much on the borders with applied math. Um, and if you do physics, you kind of spend about a third of your time doing mathematics. So um, I, I was a fairly strong mathematician, but I, I always saw mathematics as a tool for doing physics. Um, it, it, I, I just saw it as this, as, as I say, as a tool. Um, but when I wrote, I wrote a book called Fermat's Enigma, uh, which is very much about the pursuit of, of great mathematical uh, theorems. And when I wrote that book, I, I came to realise that mathematics, for its own sake, is an extraordinarily beautiful and noble pursuit. So uh, I, I've come to mathematics a little bit late in life, even, even though I'm a physicist. Why do you think that math eludes so many people, people who are pretty competent at a lot of other things? 
I, I think it's just a very unnatural thing to do. I mean, I, I've got a, a, a three and a half year old son, and and it's fascinating to see young children acquire language, um, and and to acquire an interest in in art and painting and building, um, and yet and also an, an interest in science. You know, you know, we do little experiments, and he looks up at the sky and and and, and observes nature, um, but numbers are pretty difficult things to get your head around you know he's now just beginning to get the idea of of one two three four um i i I suspect he hasn't quite understood the idea of a negative number or subtraction um let alone fractions and then we go from fractions to irrational numbers and then we go to imaginary numbers and then we go to you know you know, I suppose we all appreciate elementary mathematics to some extent. Um, but elementary mathematics is still only like reading and writing. It's just spelling. It's just the rudimentaries of the subject. Mathematics has its own language. It has its own rules. It has its own culture. It has its own history. And what I do in my books is to try and give... Well, I just say, look, you know, if you're curious about maths and you want an introduction to mathematics, then having Homer and Lisa hold your hand and guide you through uh, the world of numbers and geometries is not a bad way to start. Do you think that the nerdiness of some of the creators of The Simpsons and the people who have contributed to The Simpsons, do you think that that, and and in specific their math background, do you think that that actually has helped the show be funny and successful, or is it just coincidence that they they all happen to, or a lot of them happen to have this math background? Um, right, so that, that's a very good question. I think I think people start off from the assumption that mathematicians cannot be funny, that 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 there shouldn't even be one mathematician on the writing team of The Simpsons, let alone half a dozen with degrees, masters, and PhDs. A year ago, I spent a week with the writers, and uh, and I asked them all why why had they all ended up in comedy. The one common theme they brought up was the idea of logic. That mathematics is about logic, rigorous logic. And if you're a mathematician, you like playing with logic. You like bending logic, stretching logic, and then eventually you end up breaking logic. Mathematics is very logical, but it's also very intuitive. You're exploring unknown areas. You're trying to solve a problem, and you don't know which path will get you to the solution. And your intuition is very, very powerful, if you're a good mathematician, in leading you in the right direction. So you don't spend hours, days, weeks banging your head against the wall uh, along a fruitless path and it's the same with humor um you can spend ages trying to find a joke in a place where a joke doesn't fit and so he felt that that intuition that he'd learned as a mathematician he could also apply uh in, in humor writing it's interesting because you think of the people who create you know funny stuff as being real kind of oddballs and people who have these really wild ideas and also who are very emotional and driven by feelings. And and certainly that's a big part of it. But I could see in a writing room when you have to crank out one of these shows, you know, every week, depending on what part of the season you're in, there's a point at which probably having some people in there who think about it rationally and logically and almost in in a mathematical way would help you actually get the show done, decide what gets into the show, what doesn't, et cetera. It, it is a it is a brain buster. They called it. You know, they said you know you, you've got a very complex plot that has to be wrapped up within twenty minutes, and just making all the elements of the of the plot dovetail neatly um, requires a, a little bit of a mathematical approach to, to structuring a plot. Uh, perhaps less so a joke, um, and then also I think a lot of writers of comedy or, and stand up comics are outsiders they're oddballs they 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 come from a different background they have a different view of the world and and mathematicians have a very different view of the world the way they think about the world the way they picture the world so i think it's those kind of things people things that people may not necessarily have associated the fact that they are outsiders the fact they have stamina the fact they have intuition the fact they have a, a fairly logical approach perhaps to sometimes plotting a story We're talking to Simon Singh. His new book is The Simpsons and Their Mathematical Secrets. Um, What are some of the mathematical secrets that are laid out in the various episodes of The Simpsons? That really kind of um, piqued your interest. Yeah, Okay. Well, the first thing I ever spotted was a reference to Fermat's Last Theorem, which, as I've said already once (laughs) or twice, my first book was all about Fermat's Last Theorem. There's an equation in an episode called The Wizard of Evergreen Terrace on a blackboard. Homer wants to be an inventor. 
like Thomas Edison. And so he's in his basement and he's drawing up lots of equations. And one of these equations, as I say, relates to Fermat's last theorem. Um, it's actually what we call a false solution, which means it doesn't actually work. And um, so it's, it's a bit of a mathematical prank, which only works if you know about Fermat's last theorem and if you're willing to do the math calculation. Um, and then it crops up again in, in another episode called Treehouse of Horror 6, Homer gets dragged into a three-dimensional world. Right, okay. Special yeah. 3D animation right. uh, Treehouse of Horror segment. And so lots of weird things are flying around him. And lots of them are mathematical. This Fermat's last theorem equation, um, another equation called e to the i pi plus one equals zero. It's called, called Euler's equation or Euler's identity. It's arguably the single most beautiful equation in the history of mathematics. They talk about an equation being beautiful. Is it the simplicity? What's the beauty in an equation? Well, first of all, it's got to be accurate. <laughs> it's got to be true. But what are we talking about when we say ugly and, and beautiful? I think simplicity is really important. When you can explain a complex idea with a very simple formula, that's beautiful. When it's surprising with this Euler's equation, it's, um, what's surprising about that equation is that it's got pi in it, this number that we know and love. Um, it's got a, another number called E, which is Euler's uh, number, which is another irrational number, which sometimes you think have no, has nothing to do with pi. And yet they both appear in the same equation. So it's that juxtaposition that is a bit surprising. Um, it's a very simple equation. It's in E to the I pi plus one equals zero. It's got five elements in it. We're talking to Simon Singh. He has a new book out. It's called The Simpsons and Their Mathematical Secrets. Aside from the math, which you, you've said is maybe more for the writers and also for the, the people out there, maybe thousands that there are who get those references. What do you think, just having now talked to the writers of Simpsons and been around that show a bit, what do you attribute the success of that show to? I mean, it, it is unique. No other show's been around, no other sitcom's been around for 25 years. The 25th season's just started. There is a, a, a certain level of continuity. So Al Jean who uh, is a mathematician. In fact, when he was 16, he went to Harvard to, to study math. He was two years ahead of the rest of his, his friends, a very, very bright young mathematician. He worked on the very first episode of The Simpsons, and he's still there today. He's still, I think, an exec producer. And he's been there almost throughout. So you have this level of, of continuity of, of knowing what The Simpsons' values are and what their style is, and that they still hold true to that. The movie theatre in Springfield is called the Springfield Googleplex. Now, that couldn't happen in Friends. It couldn't happen in Cheers. That's just an absurd name for a cinema, Googleplex. And a Googleplex is, um, is 10 to the power of Google. Okay, now, what's a Google? Well, a Google is 10 to the power of 100. So these are real mathematical terms. And, and the company Google is named after this number, Google, 10 to the power 100, uh, which is a huge, massive number, uh, because Google likes to think that it can give us access to vast amounts of information. The cinema of Futurama is called the Aleph Null Cinema. And Futurama is, of course, set well in the future, yes. so we're imagining the progress of time. That's it. And the, and the progress of time allows a cinema that has an infinite number of screens, because Aleph Null refers to the smallest scale of infinity. Because there is also an Aleph 1, which is a bigger type of infinity, and an Aleph 2. And, so, and I can see you're quite perplexed at the I, idea I, that you could have something bigger than standard infinity. That is, that is hurting my brain right now as you uh, say it. It's, it's, um, the normal infinity we talk about is, let's say, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, infinity. Uh, that's standard infinity. But if you look at just the decimal numbers between 0 and 1, there are many, many, many more decimal numbers between 0 and 1 then there are counting numbers between zero and infinity. So we call the, the, the decimal quantity Aleph 1. Wow. Um, putting the, the topic of The Simpsons aside and just talking about the idea of math and, and complex math, Right. there's a real debate about if, uh, if it should be uh, given as much importance as it is in education. Because for a lot of people what keeps them from graduating high school, what keeps them from, from maybe getting their prerequisites done in college is math that is that is, most people, it seems, will not use in their real life. And then the argument has always been, well, it teaches you problem solving. But there seems to be a certain backlash against that these days, at least 
in from some quarters in the US? So in Britain, we specialize much earlier. We abandon uh, topics much earlier. Now, I think people really should leave school, uh, high school, with a confidence in it, with, with basic mathematics. They should leave as numerate people that can take part in society. Now, do they need to understand calculus? Um, maybe not. I, I, I'm not sure they really do. Um, and I think what we really need to say is, right, you know, if, if you struggle with math, then we're going to make sure you leave feeling positive and confident about math. I mean, I would love it if the world embraced mathematics, and I would love it if the world followed the discovery of the, the Poincaré conjecture with great enthusiasm. Um, but once people have achieved a basic level of numeracy and literacy, um, then, then I'm, I'm all for encouraging people to specialise and, and perhaps let other things drop behind. I can see how somebody right. would, would be terrified of mathematics, who would, you know, would feel intensely frustrating. Well, and also uh, because there's a right and a wrong answer in math, unlike poetry. Yeah, I mean, yeah. people who know from poetry could argue that there are certainly rules well, we, and we, structures. We can, but... the, we can all read the same great poets, and we, can, and we can all get something out of those poems at different levels. We're not all capable of understanding the great mathematical proofs. Indeed, I'm not capable of understanding the greatest mathematical proofs. Um, so I'm glad to hear that there are some <laughs> of these that elude even you, because no, no, I, no, it, it, it gives me comfort. It, it, well, you know, the greatest mathematical proofs are probably only accessible to a handful of mathematicians who specialize in those particular areas, um, whereas the greatest uh, works of literature will be read by millions around the world. Wow. Well, listen, Simon Singh, this has been uh, this has been really interesting and entertaining. And I've always loved The Simpsons. And now I will feel even more proud of my love for The Simpsons, because I'll, I'll assume that somewhere all of that math was accreting to something for me as a viewer, even though I probably had no idea it was even happening. Yeah, maybe it's been percolating into your mind. And, and uh, no, we're all a little bit more mathematical. Thanks to The Simpsons. Well, thanks for being on the show. Appreciate my, it. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. That was Simon Singh, and you are listening to Live Wire Radio. Hey, if you're going to be in the Portland area on December 14th, you got to come to our next show. It's going to be a doozy. Storyteller and radio host Stephen Tobolowski will be there. Ophira Eisenberg, who hosts this great new show on public radio called Ask Me Another. Lindy West from Jezebel. And also, we'll have the music of Blitzen Trapper. It's all happening at the Alberta Rose Theater on December 14th. Go to LiveWireRadio.org for more information and how to get tickets. Okay, next up, we asked our house poet for his thoughts on holidays past and present. Here with Reflections by the Pool, the Thanksgiving edition. This is poet Scott Poole. I sing the kids' table. Give me the kids' table anytime I'm hungry for anarchy in a delicious setting. Give me that cheese log we all attack like wolves with that mysterious crunchy covering on it, like somebody bought a brick of cheese at the supermarket, ripped the plastic off of it, rolled it into a cheese snowball, and had a fight with their little brother who ducks, sending the cheese ball into the salad bar, where it rolled through the croutons and quinoa, peanuts and jello salad, then dropped on the floor and picked up all the dust and dirt and gravel and cast off shopping cart bits and was then picked up, shoved back into the wrapper and back into the cart before mom found out. Give me that old rickety card table. Let's watch it collapse after Cousin Joey shoves other Cousin Joey through it. Let's set up a cardboard box as a quick substitute with a tablecloth on it. Let's watch it bow in the middle. Your cranberries mixing with my cranberries and your potatoes mixing with my potatoes until it collapses, covering the dogs in a miasma of mom's six hours of hard work. Give me those days back where we were sent out to the back porch even though it's 30 degrees outside with the last of the food crusty deviled eggs and dried out gherkins and every parent mad at us and we're sitting around a thin glass patio table freezing to death with dogs wrapped around our ankles like panting snow boots I want that moment back when other cousin Joey figures out he can hold a roll above the glass table and show it to the dogs and they will jump right into the table bam crack Whoosh, and the table collapses into a million shards of barking and woe and damn it, kids, and he did it, Mom, and I have to be. And can everyone just stop freaking out for a second? 
I want that final time back when we were allowed to sit at the adult table because we ruined every other table and have a nice piece of warm pumpkin pie with a single mountainous dollop of whipped cream on top while the parents faded away to nothing at 5 p.m. on the couch and we were once again the little kings and queens of the earth. That's Livewire poet Scott Poole, and it is so weird that he would mention live dog boots because I'm actually wearing them right now. Okay, memories of the kids' table, like Scott was talking about, those memories either make you wish that you were back home or they really, really make you glad you're not home anymore. And we've sort of got people in both camps here at Livewire. So we asked a couple of our house band members, Dave Jorgensen from Blind Pilot and Jim Brunberg, formerly of the band Box Set, to play a little something about home with the newly formed band that they've just created. It's called Year Afar. So this is Jim and Dave and Suzanne Tafan and Ben Landsverk singing for Livewire Radio.
was Year Afar with a little ditty about home that came to you originally from the Talking Heads. This is Livewire Radio. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. You can always visit our website, livewireradio.org. And you can listen to past shows there. Speaking of past shows, we're going to pull a sketch from the vault. Here's one from back in 2006, which we've re-recorded with our current cast. Good night, everyone. We'll see you guys at Christmas. Heidi, I officially declare our first Thanksgiving dinner a winner. Really? Do you think your mother liked my turkey? Which, the tradition or the deep fried? <laughs> Both were amazing. Oh, thanks, sweetie. Ooh, the wishbone. Here, grab an end to make a wish. Uh, okay, ready? Yep. One, two, three. <gasps> Yay! Uh, you got the big piece. I wanted you to win. Oh, uh, But I wanted you to win. Well, the truth is, my wish was that your wish would come true. Oh my gosh, that's what I wished too. You did? Oh, how sweet. It is, but, you know, if we both wish the other's wish would come true, then nobody gets a wish. <laughs> that's no fun. Well, there are two wishbones here. Let's try it again. Okay, here. Grab hold. Make your wish. One, two, three. I win this time. Super. But I have a confession. I wished your wish would come true again. That's funny because this time I wished that your wish wouldn't come true. You what? Well, I thought you might wish that again. So this way I thought I could break the stalemate. How, how could you? What? Well, I thought maybe you'd wish for a boat or money or something selfish. I never thought you'd actively wish against me. Hey, take it easy. It's another wish wash anyway. No harm, no foul. And if we're playing the blame game, you're the one that invalidated all the wishes by talking about them. Wish killer. <gasps> wish killer? Maybe I should wish against you and see how you like it. With what, Heidi? We're out of wishbones. I don't need one. Starlight, star bright, first star I see tonight. I wish I may, I wish I might have the wish I wish tonight. There. Wish made. You're being ridiculous. Telegram for Bradley Johnson. Really? What does it say? You have six months to live. Stop. Dying of strange disease so rare it's named after you. Stop. It's also strange and rare you'd be notified by telegram. Stop. Weird. Stop. Apologies, Dr. Melman. It, it worked. Are you happy now? I have Bradley's disease. Well, two can play at that game. Give me that slice of pumpkin pie. This candle from the centerpiece and... Uh, 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 happy birthday to me. Singing telegram from Dr. Melman. Well, hello, Heidi got bad news. Heidi, you've got Heidi syndrome, but it ain't all bad. As an organ giver, Heidi, your healthy liver, Heidi will save the life of your dear husband, Brad. Thank you, get out. Heidi syndrome? Well, I'm not going down without a fight. This is war, Bradley. Ow, that was my eyelash. Don't worry, Brad, it was just a little hair. <sighs> my hair, my beautiful thick head of hair. No! Ow! My eyelash! Quid pro quo, honey. <gasps> Dear Lord, what have you done to me? Your thighs, my one and only. Guess you spent the last 17 months in that spin class for nothing. You're a monster. Ow! <sighs> ah, what? Wait a minute. I don't feel anything. Oh, you will. The burning and itching only happens when you pee. You're gonna regret that. Oh, look here, under the table. A shiny penny. Hmm, what to wish? Whatever. Finding a penny doesn't grant a wish. Yes, it does. Find a penny, pick it up. All, All day, day long, long you'll, you'll have, have good luck. luck. Jinx, Jinx, you owe me a Coke. Coke. Can't, Can't talk, talk until someone, someone says your name. Ah, uh, Bradley. <sighs> truce? Okay, truce. truce. <sighs> Great minds, huh? Yeah. Well, that's how we got into this mess. Heidi, I'm sorry I wished against you, and... I'm sorry I gave you incredible Hulk thighs. I'm sorry, too. And I still love you, even though you look like Wallace Shawn now. I love you, too. Oh, look out the window. A shooting star. Should we make a wish? Um, sure, but let's make it quick. I think that might be the meteor I wished would crush you. Seriously? That was Andrew Harris. 
Laura Faye Smith, and Courtney Hameister. And you're listening to Livewire Radio. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This is our post-Thanksgiving show. And you might find yourself, as you hear the show, slumped on a couch somewhere, maybe cuddling with a family member or even a pet. But did you know that there is good money in snuggling? That's right. Portland now has its first professional cuddler. Her name is Samantha Hess, and she stresses the cuddle sessions are strictly platonic. They cost 60 bucks per one-hour session, but luckily for us, she does interviews for free. So I gave her a call. This is Sam. Hey, it's Luke Burbank with Livewire. Hi, Luke. How are you? I'm doing really well. Are you in the in the midst of a cuddle right now? No, I don't take appointments on Tuesdays. When did uh, the idea of going pro with your cuddling, when did that idea come to you? When the seed kind of got planted, I, I was on Facebook and saw a picture of a guy with a free hug sign. He had a deluxe hug for $2 sign, and it kind of just sparked something in me. And I realized that platonic human touch is something that we really don't get enough of in many situations in our life. So why not make it a service available to people? So can you take me through... A typical session, if I had uh, signed up through your website and I was coming over for my cuddle session, what exactly happens? We typically will email back and forth a bit. I have a waiver that I send to you, and if you're still interested, we do a public meet and greet. Usually at a coffee shop, we'll meet and, and talk for 45 minutes or an hour. I like to know people's stories, why they're seeking out my services, what they're hoping to get from it, um, and really like a full understanding of what I can do to help better their lives a little bit. Uh, once we actually agree to a session, um, I will go to their homes, uh, and typically I'll put on some music. I, I use Spotify on my phone. I have a, a cuddle mix, a jazz mix, a meditation mix. So the music goes on, and then we would uh, lie down on the bed, I guess, and would you decide the the cuddling position? Would I be able to put in a request if I wanted to be the big spoon or the little spoon? How does it all sort of work? So the, the session is, is guided by the client. Some people prefer to have me take charge and kind of lead them through it if they're not comfortable. But generally, people just get comfortable, and then I, I kind of cozy up next to them uh, in a typical session for 60 minutes. We would change into maybe four to six different positions, maybe 10 to 12 times total. It really depends on the person. Some people stay in the same position the whole time, and others want to change every two minutes. Um, because you are a professional snuggler, Samantha, um, do you have any advice? Because, for instance, uh, when my wife and I fall asleep, we have this whole little ritual where I put my arm under her head, and that's great. But then there's always a point where it starts to become uncomfortable for me, but I don't want to move it because, right. A, she's starting to fall asleep, and B, I don't want it to read as like I'm not enjoying the experience. How do you delicately get out of an uncomfortable cuddle? You want to avoid getting in that in the first place, honestly, is, is kind of the key. So with like at the normal spoon, the best situation is for the, the big spoon, the person, you know, in the back mm -hmm. to either do what I call the like the superhero where you put your arms straight up so that it's not under their head or you put it under your own head so you can move it as necessary. Have you patented or trademarked these phrases, things like superhero? Is that your invention? It will be in my upcoming book, which will be uh, available for pre-sale starting next week on my website, CuddleUpToMe.com. What are some of the other cuddling positions that you've uh, given a, a new title to? Uh, there's the Tarantino. <laughs> what is the Tarantino? Uh, basically, it's a it's a cuddling position for introverts. It's it's meant to keep your faces far enough apart where you still have your your personal bubble. Basically, you kind of both sit up. Um, the the person at the end of your feet gets to rest their head on your your knees, and they can put their feet <laughs> up to your chest because Tarantino so wait is likes it is it is it the closeness of the feet that it's called the Tarantino? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's another one? Um, let's see. There's the bee's knees. Um, that's basically where you both, uh, lie side to side, but one, your heads are at opposite ends and you rest your knees on the other person's knees. What is your advice as a professional snuggler for the people who are snuggling down for a nap on Thanksgiving and the days after? I like to encourage people to cuddle everybody and anybody that they're comfortable with. It, it doesn't have to just be someone they're in a romantic relationship with. You can cuddle up with your friends, your family, your nieces and nephews. Anybody that's around, grab them and hold them tight. That's Samantha Hess. 
professional cuddler in Portland, making sure that those Portlandia sketches are more documentary than fiction, talking to us right here on Livewire Radio. Her website, by the way, is cuddleuptome.com. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, who reminds you that Christmas is now less than a month away. And if that fact made you think about moving to Iceland in the middle of the night and maybe changing your name to something like Ilifur Guranronsson, just so you could avoid cooking another turkey, you should know about their pre-made holiday meals. Whole Foods Market, we've got your back and your sides this holiday season. By the way, I make no apologies for that wordplay. More information is available at eataspromised.com. You are listening to Livewire Radio. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Stay with us for mental health advice from Augustine Burroughs coming up in a moment when we come back. This Livewire podcast is brought to you by Ergo Depot. Have you read the articles? Sitting is the new smoking. And also sitting is apparently the new Big Mac. And did you know that even if you exercise every day, if you sit for the rest of the day, you might as well be smoking a pack of hamburger-infused cigarettes. But Ergo Depot is here to help. They've got an entire line of ergonomic chairs and sit-to-stand desks designed to keep you moving all day, improving circulation and core strength and ending your 10 chairs a day habit. Get more information at ergodepot.com. All right, folks, this is Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. My voice barely hanging in there this week. How are you hanging in, though? Because the holidays are great, right? But they can also be a little bit stressful when it comes to mental health, which is why we pulled another conversation out of the Live Wire vault. This one with author Augustin Burroughs. He's got some pretty good, albeit brutally honest, advice for people who are going through some hard times. Here's our conversation recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater last spring with Augustin Burroughs. Um, the name of this book actually changed between the hardback and the paperback <laughs> version. The hardback right. was Overcoming Shyness, Molestation, Fatness, Spinsterhood, Grief, Disease, Lushery, and Decrepitude. And now it's just called Surviving What You Think You Can't. I know. People were like, what? Decrept to what? Well, one of the things that you wrote that I found surprising was you said you think apologies are really overrated, basically. Oh, yeah. You think that's... Was that surprising to you? Well, yeah, because I feel like in my own life, I've had incidents where it's been really meaningful for me that someone at least gets that they did something and the same... It's meaningful. No, I agree. It's nice. It's pleasant. It's nice. It's nice to have one. But the, the, the problem with an apology is that, like, if someone wrongs you, and I want to go deeper than just, like, apology, like, an admission, like, if someone you know, harms you if you've been victimized by somebody. It's really easy to sort of put your life and your future on hold until you get acknowledgement, you know? Like, I want them to admit what they did to me. I want them to just acknowledge that their actions were wrong and hurtful. And it's a, it's a desire for fairness or for as close to fairness as you can get or for accountability. And it's irrelevant because you have to move on anyway. You can't just sort of park yourself, settle in, and go after that apology. You've got to go after your future. You know, you've got to go after your life. That's what I mean. It's like apologies are wonderful when they happen, and they can fill you with, you know, life, and it's great. But don't wait around for it. If, don't, you know, it's like if someone drives over your foot and then they drive away, you can either figure out, you know, 
how you're going to walk with your new bionic foot or what you're going to do. Or you can, like, contact lawyers and send out the bloodhounds and try to track that bad person down, which is, you know, life-sucking. I think if you, were, if you were talking to a therapist, they would say something to the effect of, you know, you have to give the other person room to have their experience, and then you need to just work on what your experience is within that moment. Is some of the stuff in this book your that, version of things that therapists might also say? Yeah, what you said, just that makes sense. You do. You have to focus on, on you now. Now. Like, if, if you've been victimized in any way, you know, you've... A lot of things are terribly unfair and don't work the way they should, you know? And um, the dumber person does get the job, you know? And, oh well. It's like if you, um, I, I, you know, talk to a lot of kids who, who freak out, you know, young kid teenagers, 16, 17, 15, who are concerned because maybe one of their parents is a drug user or an alcoholic or, and, you know, like, like running with scissors, when maybe they have a mentally ill parent. My feeling about that is if, the, if you have two parents, you know, who love you, you've, you know, that's lotto. If you have one parent who loves you, that's still lotto, you know? What if you have half a parent who loves the lotto? It's, that's a scratchy card. That's yeah. a scratchy card because yeah. you've got a parent. Yeah. But if you've got, like, bad parents or no parents, parents are a luxury. You can be fine. Well, let me ask you this then. You are somebody who's been through a lot in your life, and yet now you have written books that have been on the New York Times bestseller list. They've been uh, made into a film. Uh, you've enjoyed a tremendous amount of success. People uh, are big fans of yours. Do you have way fewer problems now than you used to have? No, I have more. <laughs> no, the problems are different. They're Because they're, it's all internal. My head is the same, unfortunately, that it's always been. So... The difference is that, like, I go out on, like, here I am in public. Hi, wow. I would never travel on my, if I, like, I would never travel normally or leave the apartment ever. I'm, you know, I'm a hermit. And so, and I have, like, books I've got to turn in, you know. So the problems don't go away. What's, what's helped me, though, is that I'm, um, I've loved getting older, and I'm much more myself than I ever was before. And, you know, I'm at the point now about a lot of things where I just, I don't care how I come across, you know, if I, I don't care, and that's relaxing, and it makes me just much more able to be myself, so it's, certain things are worse, like when you get older, you know, your parts and pieces start falling off like hubcaps, <laughs> and I was talking to one of the musicians, and we were both like with our glasses, like up there, because there's no good place, and it's like, why can't they fix that, we were saying, it's stupid, give me baby, why can't they have, why can't I have baby eyes put in or something, don't we, can't we grow them? Well, it's, it's hell on the like babies. I feel like if you're a writer, you know, there's wait lists for everything. And my heart's good enough, my liver, whatever, it's fine, I guess. But give me some baby eyes. I need them to see things. Or dog eyes. I don't actually need color, you know. So dog eye. But I like dogs. Yeah. I like babies, too. We are really pushing the scientific envelope uh, on this show today. Well, Augustine Burroughs, I think it's a fascinating book, and, uh, and I think everybody should grab it. And congratulations on all of your work, and thanks for coming on LiveWire. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast. That was Augustine Burroughs. His latest book is This Is How, Surviving What You Think You Can't. Which leads us to our final segment on this special post-Thanksgiving spectacular. Thank you so much, everybody, for bearing with my voice. This is one of our favorite moments from last year. It was a reading from author Cheryl Strayed. You might know her from the amazingly successful memoir she wrote called Wild, which is now being turned into a major motion picture by Reese Witherspoon, not to brag. Cheryl is also the advice columnist known as Dear Sugar. And uh, this is her reading, some advice that we thought maybe everybody should hear. Dear Sugar. I read your column religiously. I'm 22. From what I can tell by your writing, you're in your early 40s. <laughs> My question is short and sweet. What would you tell your 20-something self if you could talk to her now? Love, Seeking Wisdom. Dear Seeking Wisdom, stop worrying about whether you're fat. You're not fat. Or rather, you're sometimes a little bit fat, but who gives a 
There is nothing more boring and fruitless than a woman lamenting the fact that her stomach is round. Feed yourself, literally. The sort of people worthy of your love will love you more for this sweet pea. In the middle of the night, in the middle of your 20s, when your best woman friend crawls naked into your bed, straddles you, and says, you should run away from me before I devour you. Believe her. (laughs) You've all had that friend too, yeah. You are not a terrible person for wanting to break up with someone you love. You don't need a reason to leave. Wanting to leave is enough. Leaving doesn't mean you're incapable of real love or that you'll never love anyone else again. It doesn't mean you're morally bankrupt or psychologically demented or a nymphomaniac. It means you wish to change the terms of one particular relationship. That's all. Be brave enough to break your own heart. There are some things you can't understand yet. Your life will be a great and continuous unfolding. It's good you've worked hard to resolve childhood issues while, you're, while in your 20s. But understand that what you resolve will need to be resolved again and again. <laughs> you will come to know things that can only be known with the wisdom of age and the grace of years. Most of those things will have to do with forgiveness. Don't lament so much how your career is going to turn out. You don't have a career. (laughs) You have a life. Do the work. Keep the faith. Be true blue. You're a writer because you write. Keep writing and quit your bitching. Your book has a birthday. You don't know what it is yet. You cannot convince people to love you. This is an absolute rule. No one will ever give you love because you want him or her to give it. Real love moves freely in both directions. Don't waste your time on anything else. Most things will be okay eventually, but not everything will be. Sometimes you'll put up a good fight and lose. Sometimes you'll hold on really hard and realize there is no choice but to let go. Acceptance is a small, quiet room. One hot afternoon during the era in which you've gotten yourself ridiculously tangled up with heroin, you will be riding the bus and thinking what a worthless piece of crap you are when a little girl will get on the bus holding the strings of two purple balloons. She'll offer you one of the balloons, but you won't take it because you believe you no longer have a right to such tiny, beautiful things. You're wrong. You do. Your assumptions about the lives of others are in direct relation to your naive pomposity. Many people you believe to be rich are not rich. Many people you think have it easy worked hard for what they got. Many people who seem to be gliding right along have suffered and are suffering. Many people who appear to you to be old and stupidly saddled down with kids and cars and houses were once every bit as hip and pompous as you. When you meet a man in the doorway of a Mexican restaurant who later kisses you while explaining that this kiss doesn't mean anything, because much as he likes you, he's not interested in having a relationship with you or anyone right now, just laugh and kiss him back. Your daughter will have his sense of humor. (laughs) Your son will have his eyes. The useless days will add up to something. The waitressing jobs, the writing in your journal, the long meandering walks, the reading poetry and story collections and novels and dead people's diaries and wondering about sex and God and whether you should shave under your arms or not. These things are your becoming. One Christmas at the very beginning of your 20s, when your mother gives you a warm coat that she saved for months to buy, Don't look at her skeptically after she tells you she thought the coat was perfect for you. Don't hold it up and say it's longer than you like your coats to be and too puffy and possibly even too warm. Your mother will be dead by spring. That coat will be the last gift she gave you. 
you will regret the small thing you didn't say for the rest of your life. Say thank you, sugar. Thank you. Cheryl Strayed here on Livewire Radio. Whew, we made it, you guys. The turkey and mashed potatoes are leaving our systems, and we're finished with this special post-Thanksgiving edition of the show. Thank you so much for spending the time with us, and a huge thanks to our guests, Simon Singh, Samantha Hest, Augustin Burroughs, Cheryl Strayed, Holcomb Waller, and Year Afar. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, Laughing Planet Cafe, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Arts Commission and National Endowment for the Arts, and listeners like you fine, beautiful people, you. Our media partners are KUOW 94.9 FM in Seattle, Oregon Public Broadcasting, and kink.fm. Lodging provided by the best hotel in America, as far as I'm concerned, the Hotel Deluxe in Portland, Oregon. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hameister and Jim Brunberg. Our sketch comedy troupe is Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, and Laura Faye Smith. Our head writers, Courtney Hameister, show writers, Sean McGrath, Scott Poole, Jason Rouse, and me. Sound effects by Jason Rouse. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about the show or becoming a member of Livewire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.